Hi, folks. Welcome to another installment of the O Group on the Wilbur's Nation podcast with myself, Wilbur to Explorer Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Bathful Guide Ben Main, here at Wilbur's Nation. This episode marks our concluding installment looking at the airborne element at the Rhine crossings of March 1945 with Bathful Guide Alex Collins. We discover more about the resupply mission, delve into the remarkable actions that saw the awards of both VC and Medal of Honor decorations during this operation as well as discuss the relief of and casualties incurred by the Allied Airborne Forces. You mentioned, oh, when we were in Normandy, you mentioned to me about Nick Archdale witnessing one of those, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. When, when I met Nick on his farm in Wales a few years ago, uh, you know, we, I was there all day, we, we, we spoke about lots of things and Nick said the the thing that gave him trouble now and again, you know, sleeping flashes in his mind was one of them B-24s that that, that crashed on, on varsity. Um, Nick was with C Company of the 7th Battalion and their position, they were, they were dug in um, protecting the northwest side of the, of the, of the drop zone. And as the liberators had passed, where where they were they was pretty much on the the aircraft that went over was pretty much on the the, the furthest left aircraft of all of the formation now that, that aircraft was 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 hit after it had dropped its supplies i know that for a fact i'll i'll, I'll explain how i know that in in a moment but this this aircraft was 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 hit um number 3 engine was 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 taken out and number 3 engine on a B24 liberator powers the hydraulic pump uh, that went, which meant that all the all the flaps and aerons were inoperable, and that aircraft crashed. And it crashed basically right in front of of uh, where where Nick was. It, it come down probably 150 yards away from him, and he he said he could see the pilot in his seat, you know, just trying to trying to do what he could to try and land the aircraft if he could. Yeah, and Nick said that, that that guy's face flashed right in front of him before they, that aircraft ploughed into the ground. Um, and he, he said he had a lot of trouble with, with with that as an event, which he you know absorbed with all the other things that he saw, you know, you know, in, in Normandy and and after Varsity going going through Germany. Just out of interest, how did um, you mentioned the Twenty Second Independent Company? How did they actually mark these drop zones for the Liberators? Well, they were they were supposed to uh, put out signs, arrows, uh, letters, and that equipment was carried by the officer who was in command of them on the on, on the day. They went in by glider, and they had a, a a brain carrier vehicle, like you know, small tracked vehicle to use. But that uh, that was damaged on landing, so. All they could do was what they were going to do anyway. Just, just, just didn't have the markers on the ground. They, uh, once they selected their their spot for the resupply, that information was was radioed to divisional HQ. Then those that that reference that map reference was then passed up the line um, and then transmitted to to the pilots directly on the on the way in because the the pilots and navigators they had they had these. Uh, numbers one to six of possible drops, and they got told it's you know number number four. So they had the information not long before before they got there, and they could they could then adjust their final flight 
all right plan for that. But thinking about it, it's quite a very gutsy move that these resupply aircraft are, you know, on their way, and they they don't know exactly where they're where they're going to be dropping their their, their supplies. That is one of the more impressive parts of of the whole operation for me. That that part. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I mean, did they have any sort of um, fighter escorts as well for this? Liberators, I've got to be honest, as we speak right now, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to say no. They, obviously, they've got their own their own weapons on board, their 50 cal machine guns for, for protection, but I, I do know that they didn't have all of their guns available uh, for fear of shooting at um, friendly forces on the ground, which which did occur throughout the war. You know, the friendly fire was, you know, apart from the biggest oxymoron in the English language, friendly fire, blue on blue, as they call it in modern times. That, that's not a modern thing. It, it happened in the Gulf War, happened in the Second Gulf War, it happened in Afghanistan, it happened in World War Two. Mm. So the only only guns they had on the aircraft were the the top gunner and one of the one of the belly gunners on the uh, one of the side uh, side gunners on the side of the aircraft. Yeah. Now the that information about the the B24s when when Nick told me about Nick Archdale told me about that B24 that crashed right in front of him I'd spoken to Ron Perry from 7th Battalion um and he told me pretty much the same thing so he Ron being in the machine gun platoon his his Vickers detachment was with C company on that day uh, on varsity so he saw the same crash and I I tried to look, find out a little bit more about it tried to look into it if there's any more information available and there was a crashed air, aircraft report online about, about the aircraft, uh, and it was called the Queen of Angels, which was its name. And it had the pilot's name, Lofgren. Um, it had all the crew names. And the, the, at the bottom, it said the information supplied by a lady called Betsy Keenan Walker. So I figured she's maybe one of, you know, a relation of the crew somehow that, that, that knows this. So one of the powers of social media, I then searched Facebook for Betsy Keenan Walker. And I can tell you there are five Betsy Keenan Walkers in America. And I messaged them all with the same message. (laughs) (laughs) Are you you the Betsy Keenan Walker that did the aircraft report for B-24 Queen of Angels? Four of them ignored me, thought I was obviously a lunatic. One of them replied saying, who the the hell are you? That then transpired half hour later to a four-hour Skype call with the daughter of Alan Keenan who was the rear gunner of that, that, that aircraft. And he survived. He survived the crash. Now, this, this is remarkable. He, um, so he was the rear gunner. But as I said before, the, the, the rear guns weren't in action, but the full complement of crew went. So he was basically aiding with the, the other waist gunner and the, the, the nose gunner, just bailing out the supplies as they, as they went over. So his story was they, they got the supplies out job done and then they started taking fire they were so low um, as I said before engine number three got hit plane went up Lofgren the pilot took it up in the air trying you know try and get away from the ground fire and I, I, at that point I think he knew the aircraft wasn't gonna wasn't gonna last much longer so two people managed to bail out the first guy went out and then he doesn't know why he'd done this but it saved his life Alan Alan Keenan pulled his chute open and just kind of it all kind of blossomed out and he held it in his in his arms and he and he and he, he jumped out the escape hatch underneath the uh, underneath the rear gunner's position and the, the parachute blossomed quicker than if he jumped and then pulled 
and he he shoot just about managed to open before he hit the ground. His 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 colleague that went out before didn't manage it. He hit the ground and 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 was and was killed. So Alan Keenan was was pretty much immediately captured. We think he was about five six hundred yards away from the, the actual crash site. So he was in my best guess in the wood line across opposite from where Nick Archdale was, where the German soldiers was was still still active. He was immediately captured. He had a broken ankle. And he was carried off, and and he spent the, the the next six seven weeks of the war in a in a POW camp. So, having found out that information, I told Nick uh, and Ron that you know somebody survived this. Somebody survived, and he ended up being lieutenant colonel in the US Air Force. He 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 flew B twenty nine bombers. He he had a he had a big family. His grandsons just joined the US US Air Force, and. Nick was thrilled with that because this this big event that happened in front of him, which gave him some mental scarring, there was a happy ending to to all that, and and it, and that gave me a a real good feeling that I was able to kind of um, give Nick that, that that information about about that aircraft. Well, that's a truly incredible story, and how someone survived that experience is just uh, mind boggling, really. Yeah. yeah. When I mean, can you talk us through the the events of the day, as it were? Obviously, we've touched on the landing, etc., um, and the disposition of the troops um, between the seventeenth and the sixth. But I mean, how does the day kind of develop for these guys? Okay, so all objectives as set out were uh, were, were taken in 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 good time. The seventh battalion at the north end of drop zone B had some active 88 guns not far from them at all and they had a lot of casualties in in a company in particular but their job was to, was was to screen the top of that 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 drop zone and they did unfortunately they screened it with quite a few dead bodies up there they they really suffered but in the end they they they, they held that that 88 gun battery was taken out by uh, lieutenant Cyril Cook from the 12th battalion who were about 400 yards southeast of the 7th battalion positions Interesting point about that is Cyril Cook used to be in the 7th Battalion before he took his commission and went over to the 12th. So after that, the 7th Battalion were asked by the brigade commander to go to their reserve position, which was close to the Kopanov farm. Um, and they were then set to reinforce the village of Hamilton should the Germans counterattack over the bridges and in, in, into the village. In the event, that didn't happen. All across the board... Within a couple of hours, the, the, the objectives were, were held, not without casualties, I must say, but the, the Germans that were east of the river at ISIL were, were keen to get back across and inflict some damage. Later on in the day and into the night, artillery rounds were landing in the village of Hammonkeln. There's a very small hamlet called Ringenberg just across from uh, the bridge that B Company of the Oxen Bucks were, were holding. Now, these bridges were preset for demolition should they should they need to be because at that point you know as it gets dark on the 24th of march the link up with the ground troops and the armor hasn't happened so if the germans managed to get any sort of armor across the isle river they'd run amok amongst airborne troops dug in around the village so there were counter-attacks amongst them bridges the royal ulster rifles on the bridge at the south of the village that's on brunastraza they managed to fend off um, at least one Panzer tank, uh, Panther tank, I should say, and up at the Oxenbucks Bridge on Ringenberger Strasse, as it goes to the hamlet of Ringenberg, 
there was they could hear for a few hours armored vehicles kind of forming up and that was quite a precarious position because in between Ringenberger Straza and where the bridge was there's which is now the autobahn the route three the main the main motorway which which goes past Hamilton and at the time it was under construction it was just big big piles of sand ready for the uh, ready for the land of the road and the Germans were able to use these these massive banks of sand to to basically form up without without being seen now there were typhoons spitfires in the air which were called in to attack these but they did manage to get close enough to the bridge with with armored vehicles that the um oxen bucks put the call in we're, we're not going to hold this much longer can we blow the bridge and that decision had to be made at no lower than brigade level so the uh, the order was given yes you can you you can blow that bridge and they they took that decision about three in the morning um which would have been the 25th which which stopped the uh, german armor coming coming across so from that point for the next 24 hours it was really consolidating their positions the, the sixth airborne they from dza three power brigade they moved east linking up a bit bit more with the uh, 17th airborne clearing out you know pockets there were still pockets of resistance in amongst forest yeah so they took a couple of days to kind of mop up and then the advance in earnest across the river isil um started on the uh, the 26th and there's countless acts of valor bravery and courage which are never recorded nor recognized during the war uh but during Op- operation varsity you know two of the highest recognitions for such acts were awarded both in the form of the victoria cross uh, from the British perspective, and also the Medal of Honor from the American perspective, to members of both airborne divisions, weren't they? Yeah, certainly. Um, for the Sixth Airborne Division, it was the first Canadian parachute battalion that had uh, Fred Topham, who was a medic with them. He was all of the Victoria Cross. He actually did two acts of valor that that that, that day, which which got him the award. The, the the first instance was on the on the drop zone. There was a casualty being tended to by a medic who was who was taken out, I think, by a sniper. Another medic went out to tend, you know, tend to them. Boom, he gets taken out as well. And at that point, most people would think, I'm not going to go anywhere near that. But Mr. Topham decided that was exactly what he was going to do and go there. So he went out to see what he could do with those now three casualties. He, he took a round himself. He got wounded, uh, but managed to do what... The best he could for these for these guys before making his way back to his own lines. He was out in the open a good hundred yards, and then a bit later on, one of the universal carriers, one of the Bren carriers, which uh, would have been brought in by glider um, on on that on that drop zone, that was that was hit either by a mortar round or a, a, a eighty eight round or, or, or such, uh, and the vehicle caught fire. And Mr. Topham decided he was going to go and rescue these guys, and he got three guys out of that burning carrier and dragged them, dragged them, dragged them away. Obviously, saving their saving their lives. So he was awarded the Victoria Cross there, which is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, regards to the Americans and Medal of Honor, the two guys, Private Peters from the 507th, and Private First Class Striker Stuart Striker. Regards to Mr. Peters, he his his action happened as soon as he landed. There was. Him and the rest of his platoon, or certainly the guys that were landing close to him, there was a an active machine gun nest nearby. Guys are being taken out in front of his eyes, and 
made ready his, his weapon and, and charged the charged the machine gun nest, managed to stop them firing, but he was um, mortally wounded. Um, but again, saved saved many lives of the guys that were still still landing around. And you know, you're you're vulnerable when you hit the ground before you can get get your weapon ready, get out your harness, you know, get your bearings and and, and start fighting. Striker was a very, very similar, similar act. He was in the 513th, but his was uh, during a, a, a company attack. There was a, there was a building in Deersfort that was, there was a, a quite a major strong point, and guys were pinned down. But Striker decided he was he was going to force the issue and 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 attack that building, which which enabled uh, enabled a, a successful a successful attack to go in, and which which he was killed as well. Striker was killed as well. One of the questions I've been keen to ask you, and I should have probably done it earlier, really. We've touched on, obviously, the landing itself and, obviously, the resupply mission. Now, did the smokescreen generated for Operation Plunder, you know, that sort of attempt to conceal the amphibious crossing as best it could from the Germans, did that have any sort of mitigating impacts on on, uh, Varsity or the resupply missions? Now this this is one of them questions which can spark debate amongst anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, it's it's undeniable that, that amount of, uh, of generated smoke is is not going to cause a, cause an issue. Now, if you read any accounts um, or hear anybody talk about it, the glider pilots, especially trying to land around Hammondkeln. They all say the same thing. It was a thick haze, and luckily they spotted the the church tower, church steeple, which gave them some bearings, you know, to 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 land to know roughly where they were. But the notion that all of the drop zones were covered in smoke is is I'm going to say it's not true because you can you can go online, you can look yourself, search Operation Varsity, and there's pictures of guys jumping out of planes over drop zone A, and it's clear as a bell. Um, gliders landing near the Coppernoff Farm on LZP and LZR just below Hammondkeln, clear as a bell. The, 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 the haze that these guys talk about is uh, fairly close to Hammondkeln Village and on drop zone B. I think what, what happened is where the bombing of Vasel happened the night before, the, the, the dust that comes from the rubble and the fires and the bombs and everything, and that, that has drifted up. Uh, the the north is up, you know. So from Vasel, the Deersfort Forest and the High Ridge Line is on the left of it, running at like a forty-five degree angle, running away. I don't think that 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 dust cloud could could penetrate the forest and get over. So it's you know it's it's only way it could go is 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 up, which follows the River Isle, which gets to Hammondkeln. So I think that accounts for a lot of the haze that you that you hear of around Hammondkeln, but also. On drop zone B, now we know drop zone B, there was a haze on the ground. Many of the guys that parachuted in there have said, said the same thing. Right in the middle of drop zone B was actually a night fighter station, Luftwaffe night fighter station. And when, you know, a, f- a few days before, half a million men were suddenly on the other side of the river and the massive bombing um, campaign at or night before, the, the night fighters were, were dispatched away. They, they went east you know back into germany but they as as i always managed to do managed to sort of flood that area uh, of, of where the where the landing strip was 
and also around drop zone B, there's there's lots of lots of irrigation ways, lots of small you know dikes up the side of tracks. It, there's, it's quite quite wet in places, and and that with the warmer than average temperatures in March, which was which is recorded on that day, I just think that added to that kind of that haze on the ground there, the, the amount of moisture it was in the air at the time. I will argue anybody that tells me that the smokescreen made it from the River Rhine, which is probably three miles in a straight line, over a ridge line that's about 80, 90 foot above sea level, down across a drop zone that we can see is clear in aerial photographs and then hover around drop zone B. I, you know, it's, it's a debate that can go on with certain people that are um, published authors, been on the television. Um, I'll, I'll I'll counter-argue what they say on, on that subject at, um, in some points. But again, I wasn't there. We'll never know the exact truth, but uh, that, that's my my take on it. Is it fair to say some lessons have been learned from the likes of Operation Market Garden and the other operations that preceded it? As you see the amphibious assault crossing starting a whole 12 hours before the paratroopers begin to drop en masse. And obviously we talked about that quick resupply, you know, dropping in at sort of 10 to 10 and then being resupplied around one o'clock. That was certainly certainly quicker. Um, I think the, the the keenness to get the resupply done as quick as possible was obviously bore out by what had happened before. And obviously the resupply from the air can only give them certain amount of supplies. Um, it's not it's not you know if once they got the supplies from the from the from the drop um, that probably would give them another another few days of what of what they had. But the the all important part was was the link up with the with the, with the ground troops that have come across come across the Rhine. Obviously, on varsity, the the obstacle crossing by the, the the land forces in this case, the obstacle being the, the the River Rhine, that happened first. Two big reasons, uh, as you as you've said there, the airborne lads were guaranteed to be relieved. There wasn't this major obstacle between them and the the, the land forces. Uh, again, a, a, a gutsy move. You've got you've got the main body of assault troops going across two, three in the morning. Um, as we spoke about earlier, the airborne boys were just getting out of bed then. So it's quite a quite a uh, bit of trust going on between the two the two elements that that it, that it would all work out. The other main the other main difference with this being fairly fairly close, you know, from the from the river to the to Hammercombe villages you know, four and a half, five miles. So everything's concentrated in, in, in that space. You're within range of your own heavy artillery. And that, that was one of the biggest, biggest factors of, of, of the whole planning. So, you know, even if, let's imagine there was a, a massive problem and uh, the 15th Scottish Division got pushed back onto the riverbanks, couldn't get themselves up, couldn't get to the airborne forces for a couple of days. You know, you've got you know, regiments upon regiments of heavy medium artillery within within range that, that could give serious fire support to any of the airborne troops that, that had not been reached in time. So that, that, that's your two big your two big things from that. All right, we've touched on a little bit the the relief of the six and seventeenth airborne divisions, but what actually happened? When were they finally relieved, and what happened thereafter to them? Well, the the, the first official link up happened as quickly as. 3 p.m. Uh, on, on the 24th, one of the platoons from one of the, the 8th Battalion Royal Scots, I believe it was, from the 15th Scottish Division, 
one of their carriers had, had, had made it to a, a, a small, a very small bridge over a, a, you know, a, a, a stream not far from the edge of drop zone A, um, where they met a patrol of Canadians who sent them up the road to uh, divisional headquarters. They then turned back, went round, picked up their, one of their commanders, brought him back up, and they met Brigadier Hill at the, the HQ. Uh, so that was at 3 p.m. That obviously counts as a link-up, but one Bren carrier with four guys in isn't, isn't the, what you want from, a, from, a, from relieving forces. But it, it showed that the route, the route was open. So there was a small patrol of the 7th Battalion, actually, that had a specific task from their drop zone, be that, to patrol their way down to a little crossing in the wood where the railway goes, uh, and that was called Objective Fortnum. And that was a, a, a kind of choke point between drop zone A and drop zone B. There's one track that comes through, and it's quite narrow, trees on each side. And as we spoke before about choke points, if the Germans could control this, that would kind of block the route through for for the tanks um, and armoured vehicles that, that, that were expected to come through. So that patrol made contact, um, or the other way around, the armoured vehicles of the King's Own Scottish Borderers made contact with Lieutenant Patterson at Objective Fortnum about 2pm on the, on, the, on the 25th. So from that point, you could say that the you know, the link-up was, was official because um, I'd already come through three power brigade area. Um, and from that point, the armour went up to the left-hand side of drop zone B, which, if you look at a map, is the extreme left edge of, of operations. Um, so they had to secure that, that, uh, that weak left flank, if you like, and they made their way up to the area of Loicombe, little village north of Hamilton, which kind of secured the whole, the whole area. So... I think the the bridges and Hamilton village was handed over officially. Um, I think about the, um, it would have been twenty sixth. So yeah, not long. And what happened to the sixth and seventeenth after that point? Were they still involved in any sort of fighting, or were they actually kind of pulled out the line for R and R and refitting kind of thing? Yeah, no. The half the half the point of having a massive operation like this it wasn't just about getting across the Rhine it was getting across the Rhine in massive numbers enabling you to then get across Germany as quick as you can uh, and get the war finished the area of uh, once you get past Hammond Kern it's fairly flat there's a little bit of a, a ridge line around the town of Brunen and then Erler but after that you get up towards Osdebrück and the, that area of Germany is, is is called Lower Saxony. Nieder Saxon is the area. Lower being the term, as in like lowlands. It is is flat, fairly flat ground, perfect for uh, you know an advance. So yeah, the the Sixth Airborne they actually led led the way um, right up until just northwest of Hanover, little village of Wunstdorf, where there's an airfield, and just north of that is another little village called Neustadt, where there was a bridge that crossed the River Liner. And 7th Battalion, most people would have read about this, I suspect 7th Battalion were, were in lead. They went over that bridge and it got blown up with half of B Company crossing it. They lost 25 guys. And it was decided then that that battalion and everyone else should, should then step aside, have a rest. And that was the 7th of April. So they've been leading the advance up till then, losing men on the way, fighting their way through towns. Um, th this, is, this is part of the thing which 
really gives me drive to find out and talk about and do what I can to spread the word about varsity and the advance through Germany because you you'll watch TV programs and well well known well respected people on TV and authors and everything else that have done great work and it's just everyone does the same thing it's oh well then we crossed the Rhine and then the war finished you know there was a lot of fighting that went on you know they're fighting on German soil some of these Germans were defending their homeland and they didn't want to give up a lot capitulated they did of course but it was it was no easy task getting you know getting to where they finally ended up at Wismar on the on the Baltic coast where they met up with the Russians so there was a lot of fighting done after varsity a lot of men killed um, and yeah, that 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 should be spoke about more. What were the the casualties and losses like for Varsity? That just that operation on its own. Um, at the time on the on on the day, killed, wounded, and missing. It's a key word there. Missing kind of equates about thirty percent. But after the missing guys started to you know officially check in with their units, I think when all said and done, I think it was. Somewhere between two, two and a half thousand uh, killed or wounded on our side, if you like. German casualties, hard to tell. More than that, I'd say. Lots captured. There's, you know, lots of images online you'll see of a single glider pilot escorting, you know, a thousand Germans down um, the road that comes out of Hammenkel, Diersfort Strasse, taking them back to the Rhine to cross, cross the bridges into POW camps. So... Yeah, you know, over 2,000 casualties out of, you know, 16,500, that's a lot. Bearing in mind, they was only there for two days, actually on on the drop zones in the area. Uh, there's people that would tell you that, from, you know, Varsity was a, a vanity project for, for Montgomery. He wanted to finish the war with a successful airborne operation into Germany. It was a cakewalk. It was unnecessary. You know, I'll I'll argue anybody on that. This this was a this was a tough operation. And about eighteen months ago, I had a good conversation with the current CO of Three Para in Colchester, and we were talking about varsity. And he said, at his level, you know, when you do study days, battle battle studies for for the army of today, always kind of look at Arnhem. Oh, let's learn from our mistakes. Let's learn from our mistakes. And he he agreed we should also learn from our successes too. And in my opinion, there was no no bigger success than Varsity. What was it that actually inspired you to start focusing and researching Operation Varsity then? My granddad was in the 7th Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. I never met him. He died in 1959. Growing up as a boy, I knew my granddad was in the war, but he's because he, he died when my, my mum and auntie, his two daughters, were, were very young. It was never spoken about. I joined the army myself. I had no idea that my granddad was in the parachute regiment. It's only in the last six, seven years, I guess, that um, I've really started to find out more. Got the um, service record, started to look into it. And he was a career soldier, joined the army in 1933, was with the Bedfordshire Hertfordshire Regiment, fought in Tobruk, all through the Middle East, was over part of the Chindit columns, Managed to get back, volunteered for airborne forces. And he, he didn't drop into Normandy. Obviously, being the sixth airborne, he was not at Arnhem. So this was his 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 combat jump of the war, which has obviously focused my attention there. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. Next up on the podcast, we're talking with British historian James Holland about the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry and this armoured unit's wartime experiences serving right at the spear's tip of the fighting. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels, including various maps kindly provided by Alex, and also a few of the pictures we briefly discussed. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at World War II Nation, and also Instagram at World War II Nation HQ. 